All right. Twenty second of Kislev uh, by a chef, and uh, he dwelt is our uh, portion. And I think I've said enough. Is there anything else to say? No. Joshua, oh, please. You. By the way. Didn't he do an awesome job leading the tourist service? Yes. yes. It's unbelievable. We could not have done that. It would have been just, you know, concert B flat, white bread. Inch. Good job. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Love you in winter green. Uh, yes, and speaking of winter, we appreciate the Canadians bringing the winter with them. Uh, I think this is the first time in maybe the last 20 years it snowed in December. I mean, it's really, yeah. really unusual. Yeah. <laughs> but it's beautiful. We're having fun with it. Yeah, it's crazy. Really, really early. Um, I like to start our Torah portion discussions um, by usually asking a question to some of the children in the room. Um, oh, so, oh, <laughs> right, exactly. Um, Sophia, do you know, um, you know how to say in Hebrew if you're speaking something bad? If you say something bad, do you know how to say that? Lashon. You know that one? Megan, do you know that one? Evil speech. People's speech. You know what it is? Lashon Hara. Very good. That's very, very good. We knew you knew. That's excellent. Sophia, can you think of something that you could say that would be bad or mean? Well, what's something you should not say? Oh, don't say it. Don't say it. <laughs> so like, like, what, what is an example of something we should not say? Do you want to say something? It's not good to say something mean to, like, to Zoe, right? Yeah. Yeah, we shouldn't say mean things to Zoe. Or me. Or, or, to, or to Mr. Spurlock. Absolutely not. That sounds so weird coming from me. To my father. Um, <laughs> trying to set the right example, you know? Yeah. The right words to the right kids. Um, but right, yeah, they're, they're very, there's lots of different examples. Um, Micah, can you think of an example of Lashon Hara? What's something we shouldn't say? Evil speech. Not what you would say. Yeah. You don't have to say a specific example, but just like generically. Something bad in my there we go. Okay, good. And um, I can see a theme here, right? These guys well, don't have any. It so happens that there was a guy who had siblings, and he said some bad things about them in this parasha. Apparently, so, there's no sibling rivalry that exists in this room. Apparently, yeah, no, these are great. <laughs> <laughs> If I ask them what's an example of evil speech, they have no idea. That's right. Oh, They've yeah, all been raised to be Saudi king. This is fantastic. Um, but no, in the in this week's parasha, there's some some rabbis who criticize Joseph because of some of the things that he says about his brothers. Um, it says in the in, in the this week's parasha that he would come back and bring an evil report about his brothers to his father. Um, and I think it's important to remember this is not this is this is different from children saying my two-year-old brother is running in the street. You know, Joseph is 17. His his uh, his older brothers. Are in their twenties at least. He um, so when he's speaking lashon hara, it is one adult speaking negatively about another adult. So there's certain a context there, but also I think it's important um, that there's a really interesting uh, word that's used about Joseph in this passage, and they call him a naar, which is translated youth in a lot of these portions. Um, the Genesis Rabbah kind of says it's, it's a it's a character trait. He's acting childishly. And um, in this week's um, uh, tour portion discussion that was done by on the Yishai Fleischer show, he had uh, a guest commentator on him, Rabbi Mike Fewer, and, and Rabbi Mike was saying that this idea of being youthful, um, 
was was almost more like it was like he was acting like a child since he did he wasn't thinking of the consequences of what he was doing to other people. So he's speaking evil about his brothers, maybe because he feels like it's the right thing to do, but it's like he wasn't thinking about what it meant to them. He was talking about his dreams and telling people, here's all the great dreams I had, but he wasn't necessarily thinking about what it was doing to his brothers. He wasn't, he was, he was I guess it's like what, in, in sociology, they talk about this idea of, you, you kind of can tell the difference when someone has reached a maturity level of being an adult, when they can now think about things from somebody else's perspective. And it's not just all about them, and they can see it from their perspective. And um, that's not to say that Joseph maybe shouldn't have been saying those bad things about them. Sometimes it's justified, and it's not to say that he shouldn't have told them his dreams. Sometimes it's justified. But one of the things that Rabbi Mike said that I absolutely love, he's like, my father always told me, a gentleman never offends someone by accident. In other words, if you're sometimes you you have to speak truth, you have to say something that's going to be offensive, or to do something that people aren't going to like. Sometimes it absolutely has to be done. But if you're going to have to do that, you should be conscious of it. You should be doing it for the right reason. And there should be, uh, it should be intent behind it. It should be because you believe it's so important that it's more important than the fact that someone might not like it or it might bother somebody or whatever. And so the, the point they're trying to get out of this particular um, parasha at the beginning is it doesn't feel like Joseph's doing that at the beginning of his story. What's so cool is that at the end of his story, in this week's parasha, you see the opposite happen. He's grown up. He's gone through these awful, horrific things. And towards the end of his, of his journey now in, in Egypt, in, in slavery, this, this, this message is connected. What does he do when he sees the baker and the, the steward? What does he ask them? Remember me? Well, he was remember me at the end, but at the beginning, what does he do? Why is your face down? Why is your face downcast? Because he's paying attention. So the same young man who earlier in the beginning of the story seems to kind of be oblivious to what he's doing that's affecting the people around him. I mean, he's a, let me get this straight. Joseph's a superhero. Like, we love Joseph. He's an amazing man. Doesn't mean he's perfect. And I think that, I, I like some of the midrash on, the, on Joseph that indicate that he might be a little bit less than perfect as a young man, but he's growing out of that. He's becoming better. So by the time we get to the end of this week's parasha, this lesson has connected. Now, he, now he's thinking about other people, their reaction to life, and how he should be responding to that. And that, I think, is really beautiful. Throughout the end, the back half of the book of Bereshit, really the whole thing is about repentance, about Joseph and Judah. And we'll get more into that you know, next week's parasha, which I'm here for. <laughs> Unless you invite me over and offer me free food and wine. Yes, I got my dad and then my father. Joseph, Joseph is the first one of the patriarchs is not treated as he's not given deference in, in the Midrash. So every other Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even times when we go, well, that wasn't quite right. It had to be good. It <laughs> wasn't quite right. They, the Midrash actually goes the opposite. Oh, no, no, no. It was totally fine. Mm -hmm. It was great. He's the first one that actually the story doesn't say anything that he did wrong. Zero. Not one thing. Mm -hmm. And yet, the Midrash finds fault with this very example, the Mashon Barak. Ironically, I think, personally, is when I look at the Midrash with regard to Joseph, to me there's something that's in there that actually is is a is in fact what you're alluding to a higher a higher standard. And that is that the Midrash says that the other brothers are treating the brothers of of the, the concubines, they're calling them slaves and treating them poorly. And Joseph right. took offense for that. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah the examples wow. of So the, that would be the example of a wow. gentleman that intended 
Right. To offend. Right, right. Um, yeah, that's yeah, a good point. Um, the other midrash on Joseph is that the, one of the Lashon Harapis he's saying is he's talking about his brothers doing something that's immoral, so then they say as sort of punishment for that, he gets to deal with Potiphar's wife. So it's an important thing. I guess, I guess really what another thing that comes down when you think about Lashon Hara is your own personal heart is so important because um, what we, I think we, well, Lashon Hara really indicates a sense of arrogance. It's like they did something bad, and I would never do that. And I think when you realize, like, I mean, I, I, even just today, as I'm getting ready to, to do the, the uh, to lead the, um, the tour service, all of a sudden it's like, um, I'm so nervous about getting the Hebrew words right. And I know that there's going to be a couple of guys in the room that'd be like, eh, that was close enough. Whatever. We'll get them to slide on that one first time. But then, like, it's looking at you, Greg. Uh, I would never. But, but then, no, of course, you wouldn't do that. Of course, you wouldn't do that. There's some people who notice. You know, it's, it's like I, that's what I meant. Only that you're so advanced, you would know that I'm doing it wrong. The point, though, is to say that, like, that gave me this completely different perspective. And it's like everybody got up there to do a blessing, even if I'm like, well, I know what the blessing should be. Or it's like, well, hey, complete grace here. Like, if you do it, didn't do it correctly, that's completely fine. And I think that's really, I guess, the idea behind Lashon Hara. Lashon Hara is saying, I'm so fantastic, I never do whatever it is wrong. I have the right past judgment on this. And I can speak evil about it to somebody else or whatever. And I think that, like I said, there are times, to my dad's point, there are times when it's good to do that. We need to do that. And this society is, is partly broken because not enough people do that. On the other hand, it needs to be done with the right motivation, with the right heart. You know, Yeshua talked about take the plank out of your eye first, that kind of idea. So... Um, if we don't do it the right way, then we find ourselves guilty of, of really committing an act of murder. One of the things that the sages do, and this is so cool, um, I, think it's the, uh, it's from the, I think it's from the Talmud, they go to the story of Tamar later on. And Tamar has, she's in a tight spot. She's gotten in trouble. She's going to be dragged out to be burned for her sin. And she knows that the person who's accusing her is actually the one who's partly to blame here. But she doesn't call him out. She doesn't say, well, hey, you know, the father of this child is Judah. She instead uh, takes the items, sends them to Judah, and says, whose are these? And she puts it completely in his hands. And the, I believe it's the Talmud goes on to say, it is better to be burned alive than to embarrass somebody in public. And they, they draw from that. So you see that contrast in Lashon Hara on the opposite side, where Tamar is... Um, in this instance, maybe not in all of her life, but in this instance is a righteous, a righteous woman who's willing to her own life to avoid embarrassing another man publicly. Yes, sir. Uh, you mentioned that uh, Joseph grew up in this portion. We see a, a growth, a maturity. Um, I noticed this year that he was having dreams in the beginning, but by the end, he was interpreting dreams. Mm, so obviously he's... He's being used of God in a different way. <coughs> has changed, grown. I think is a great way to look at That's a cool way to look at that. They also um, one of the things that Rabbi Mike and um, Yishai Fleischer said on their show is this seems to make mark a, a change in the way that God talks to man. So up until now, God speaks to Abraham. It's like it's obvious, and God came to Abraham. And he said, "Your children will be taken." But, you know, uh, God speaks to Jacob. You know, he's, it's a dream, but he, God God speaks to Jacob. Joseph's dreams are different. Joseph starts a new era in which dreams are symbolic. They're full of imagery. God's not talking in these dreams. Um, and it takes uh, wisdom and discernment to understand what they mean, uh, which is an interesting transition. 
one of the things they point out is that you know, they see this pattern continue all the way up through the prophet Daniel. And I, you know, in my driving my car, it's my podcast, and I raise my hand, and like, actually, we see it all the way up through, well, the, the, the portion of the apostolic scriptures today was another example of that with Joseph, although it's not symbolic so much, that was God speaking to him. But then uh, we see all the way through the apostolic scriptures up to um, Peter's dream, it's very symbolic, and then, it, of course, we have the culmination of, in Revelation, which is a vision um, that is so symbolic, we're still confused. Mm-hmm. But um, the, uh, you see that kind of like God speaking to Pete Man in different ways. Um, I think it's kind of cool in light of that, how many dreams in the apostolic scriptures are that direct dream? Mm-hmm. Where God's saying, he's very clearly saying what's supposed to happen. Kind of makes you start to realize maybe like these apostles were really something prophetically, that they merited God speaking to them directly rather than giving them these um, uh, vague, vague dreams and visions. Mm-hmm. Um, for those of you who, well, you, you watch online, so you know we do this. Jump in at any time if you have a comment mm-hmm. or, or something to say. But um, one other thing of this week's portion, uh, of course, we last week's portion ended with the incredibly long and weird genealogy of Esau. Um, and this week's portion goes straight into uh, the, the genealogy of Jacob. But well, one of the uh, one of the, the sages, I love the, the sages. They really don't care for Esau at all. So they're like, so what do we? You know, what can this be alluded to? And they're like, why does it go straight from like this kind of? I mean, we summarize like what like a thousand years of Esau's history in nine verses, and then we then could just proceed to have the entire rest of the book of Genesis just simply about Jacob's children. And they're like, well, what, why is it such a huge con- contrast in space? In the Bible, and they said, "Well, it's because that Jacob's the righteous one. He's the he's the people of God. He matters in the story." Esau is like, "Yeah, whatever." And they compared it to like the genealogies, like all the way up through Noah, and you get one one name, one line for each single person, and they get to Noah. And now we're gonna have like three chapters, and kind of thing to Abraham. You get one line all the way through, and then you get Abraham, and then it's three. You know, he gets he gets his whole whole story put in. Um, they also said it's like a the other one they said like a parable, where a guy comes in carrying straw into the town and it's this huge heavy laden wagon of straw and the um there's a blacksmith in the town the blacksmith sees all the straw coming it's like what are they going to do with all of that like that's a lot like whoa like you know times are changing in our town we're building houses out of straw i mean who knows three little pigs going on right here but they um the point is that he's like well kind of overwhelmed by it and someone tells him you you think that's a huge deal one spark from your furnace would light the whole thing ablaze. And then, the, then of course, the sages come to do this. They immediately turn around and go, quote, from the prophecies that talk about that a fire will come from Jacob and a flame from Joseph, and it will consume the house of Esau. So we see that it's a contrast. The previous chapter was like the totality of Esau versus now the people of God who are going to be ultimately victorious to the point where it makes the Esau story almost irrelevant. Which is pretty cool. Hey, Vicky. Is that a comment? That was a hiccup. Okay. We can jump around anywhere. I want to things just point out if you have a comment anywhere in the whole question over there. All right. Okay, Nehemiah. All right. Um... Uh, what has always kind of stood out to me is um, when Joseph is approached by Potiphar's wife. And uh, his response to her is, he has given me everything in the house. 
I'm second in command, right? Except for you. Right. Right. And then his response to that is, so how can I commit this great wickedness and sin against God? Right. Not sin against Potiphar, right. sin against God. Right. So last night, um, well, yesterday we were, me, me and Rebecca, we were going over the portion. Mercedes was following with us. And Very so, cool. Mm -hmm, and so uh, they went to bed, and I was like, baby, I just, I got to read a little bit. So, so I sat down. I had a beer, okay, put the beer <laughs> on the nightstand. I leaned over, I leaned over, I put the beer down, right, put the beer down. As I put the beer down, um, there's a book, I, I don't know if you guys, you guys know about Abraham Heschel, he wrote yeah. The Sabbath. Right. Okay, so I have, I have one of his books called The Prophets. So as I leaned over the beer down, I looked down, and it's down there on the floor behind the couch, laying there. I'm like, okay, what are you trying to tell me? Right? So, I mean, you know how that goes, right? So I reach down, I pick it up, and I'm like, okay, I'm not going to, you know, usually I, I kind of use books like references. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to start from the beginning. I'm going to start at the preface, work through the introduction, and go just from the beginning. So um, it's his daughter in the introduction to, the, to his introduction. His daughter writes her own introduction about her father. Um, and so this, this part stood out to me. And it reminded me of what Joseph said uh, to Potiphar's wife. It says, my father's introduction of the term divine pathos as the central theological element of prophetic teaching was drawn from a rabbinic concept. Zore gavoha, a higher divine need. God is not the detached, unmoved mover of Aristotelian tradition, he insisted, but is the most moved mover, deeply affected by human deeds. Divine pathos indicates a constant involvement of God in human history, but insists that the involvement is an emotional engagement. God suffers when human beings are hurt, so that when I hurt another person, I injure God. Oh, that's cool. So it reminded me when, when Joseph said that, you know, right. um, he has given me everything except for you. Right. right. How can I do this great wickedness and sin that. against God? Right. And then when you look at the different um, uh, instructions, the Torah instructions, as far as um, when you sin against your fellow man and how you have to make restitution, you, you, you pay a fifth part back with, if you steal from them. You know, we're talking about Lashon Harad, the prohibitions against slander going up and down right. as a talebearer. You know, all these different things. When you look at, if you look at the summary of the, of the commandments in Exodus 20, um, you shall not covet what your neighbor has. You shall not covet his house, right? Um, so you see all these different uh, instructions that not only deal with the holiness of Elohim, but also the way we treat our fellow man. Mm -hmm. And um, he was in Isaiah 1. He talked about that. He's like, you guys are keeping all the appointed times. You're keeping all the Lord mm -hmm. But look how you're treating the widows and the orphans. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like he is affected by the way we deal with each other mm -hmm. and how we how we deal with each other. That's a great point. So. And so he goes back to Psalm 51 where David says, against you and you only have I sinned. Yeah. And like, <laughs> like, how many people, how many sins he did? A lot of things involving other people here. But yeah. his point was like the, the responsibility was to God. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a great point because it's such a contrast to the societies today. Um, recently there was an article put in the Wall Street Journal that was saying we now have to completely rethink man-woman relationships in the workforce because 
we have no standard. Like, there's no, like, it's, it's a mess, right? So we have to, like, reevaluate everything. And because the problem is, to your point, is that man went the opposite route. They said, let's take God out of morality. Let's make morality entirely about our social construct. My dad and I were talking about this, and he's saying it's like all about society says it's okay. Well, society is not offended by it, then it's fine. Well, the problem is there's no rules. It changes, and one person's what seems right to this person's not right to that person, and then what's only right if you don't get caught? I mean, it's very, and it's a huge mess because they took God out of it because, to your point, God is the reason for the morality, even in interpersonal morality. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't for God, there, I, have, I owe nothing to my fellow man. But because I owe everything to God, and he made my fellow man, well, now we have a relationship even if I don't know him. Because I know him. Um, and that's the, uh, it, that was one of the things they were saying as well. I, I'm going to probably cite this podcast too much. If you go back and listen to the podcast from last Thursday, from the Yishai Fleischer Show, it was really good. It talked about um, the... Trump's declaration of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, and then went on to do a, a really cool kind of almost narrative by narrative uh, run through of the, this week's parsha. But anyway, one of the things he was saying is it's like as a Jew, it, we have to see the face of God in people around us. Like you can't not see it, right? I mean, we're all made in the image of God. Literally, you're looking at God in a sense in 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 the people around you. And he's like, even if, God forbid, I should have to take another man's life, I would see the face of God leaving that person. Mm. Like, just, and if you think about viewing people that way, and just, like you were saying, that where their responsibility is to God, that, that completely changes the relationship to people around us. Because it doesn't matter, even if they know what I did was wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that the, the Torah kind of talks about. It's like, it doesn't matter the if it was fair or not, if it, if it was deserved or not, if the person was a good person or a bad person, it doesn't matter if the person knows or not, even. You still owe it to them to treat them differently. And it's all because of God. And over and over and over again, when God gives these laws about you do this for your fellow man, he ends with, I am the Lord your God. He took you out of the land of Egypt. Because that's the reason. And you shall be holy as I am as holy. I am you holy. shall be set apart. You owe everything to me, and therefore I tell you how to treat the other creation that I have made. To your point, we talked about Lashon Hara as being uh, elevating yourself above the other person and saying, essentially, I'm not like that. This is part of the problem that people that live in, in, a, in, a, uh, in, in communities or in a faith structure that is dependent upon a morality that is uh, divinely inspired as opposed to one that is a social construct. And because we, we can, it, it's easy to fall into the trap of then being offended by what other people do simply by the fact that it's not what you would do because you are under a obligation to God. But I think that that your point is actually far better. The reason why there should be offense, or the, maybe not offense, but the reason why there should be concern with sin in general is not because, you know, we're un, that we're unacquainted with it, mm -hmm. but rather understanding the pain mm. that it does to our creator. Mm. That and and if it's if the if it focuses the creator and the one who gave us righteousness and declared what is good and right and that any offense against it doesn't offend us but offends him that, to me that's a far different perspective Lashon Ra would be that in mind would essentially be never used we could never speak against someone you know ill because we understand it's it's 
offense is against him, not mm. against us. Yeah. Mm. That's a really far point. less sensitive to ourselves, like our ego would, you know, because a lot of it is like pride and ego. It is right, and that seems to think. Yeah. I think that I will. I'll correct the first year. Well, I just in certain cases, it seems like that's the very reason for prophecy is so that God can almost express that emotional impact that mm-hmm. his children are having on him. Mm-hmm. And that, that comes through sometimes in the words of the prophets. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, the other thing I was going to mention was just Yeshua's words about, you know, whatever you do unto the least of these, it's mm. as if you're doing it unto me. Oh, right. And yeah. which is, that always takes it home. You know, mm. it's not just your wealthy next-door neighbor. It's, it's the least of these as well, to your point. Mm. Right. That they're all... They're all God's creation. Absolutely, absolutely, and you have, and you and you owe it to God. Ah, does that, that that does change then the way that you think about it? Because because if you think about it, lashon hara really is a um, it's kind of a weird commandment because it almost never the whole point of it most of the time is not in the presence of the other person, right? So it's not like I'm, you know, not pulling somebody aside and telling them something really nasty and mean. It's normally in secret. It's, 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 it's behind the scenes. Now it's destructive. That's the reason why it's so bad. But, um, but, the, but it's, but it's obviously a sin against. It really does feel more like a sin against God, because He's the one who sees and who feels, who senses it, and it's not so much the other person even may even know. There's some others may never know, but God knows and. God made that person, and that person is precious in His eyes, and therefore there is there's pain caused. Uh, it's like if someone were to come to you, I mean, any one of you who are who are fathers in this room, you know, and come to you and say something bad about your child, not in a way of like I want you to know, just so I'm concerned, but more like your kid's a whatever, you feel horribly offended and and pained, and I think that that's really think about it, that's how God must feel when we speak to the Shabbat about somebody else. He's overhearing people speaking badly about his children. Wow, that's just a really... That's good. That's, a, that's kind of... That really makes you take it so much more seriously. Yes, sir. Uh, skipping to the end of the portion. Absolutely. Go there. The, where <coughs> Yosef asks a compare to remember him, but he gets... Apparently, for the reason in the next portion, two years to the day, the two years is because... Uh, Apparently, the two years is because Yosef asked uh, Cupbearer to remember him instead of trusting God to get him out. Right. That's what, they, that's what the sages say. I've always struggled a little bit with that. Cause it feels like, how did he was supposed to know? And, well, the sages say, like, he's supposed, to, he's supposed to know because it's so obviously a miracle. The thing about Joseph, and this is one I really want to, like, elevate Joseph here. Joseph is a superhero when it comes to faith. I think that one of the things, you know, you can critique him for a couple of things he might have done wrong here and there. But... His faith in God is off the charts. His whole life, he seems to have a perfect belief that everything that's happening to him is God's orchestrated plan. And it's okay. And the proof you see in that is how he lives it. He ends up going sold as a slave, and he becomes, he's, he works so hard, he becomes the top slave guy. Then he gets demoted all the way thrown into prison, and he's working so hard in prison that they, they make him in charge. The jailkeeper puts him in charge of the prison. Man, that's that is saying something. When when the when you're the prisoner and you're allowed to run the prison, and like he was because he took it's like he he somehow detached from what was wrong, being done wrong to him to the point that like at the end of his life he can honestly tell his brothers, "You meant for evil, God meant for good," 
Like, that's, that's incredible. So I think that's the reason why the sages hold him to a higher standard here. And they say that God is holding him to a higher standard, that he should have believed God more. And I think, to me, I, I noticed here, I hadn't seen before, but you read that verse where he goes to, to the cupbearer and says, here's what I want, here's what you need, whatever. Go, go talk to Pharaoh on my behalf. And he says at the end, then you would get me out of this building. And if you think about it, that, that little phrase, you would get me out of this building, not you can ask Pharaoh to get me out of this building, you can, uh, you can um, intervene on my behalf to help me get out of this building. He's not seeking assistance, he's seeking the other person to do it for God, really, rather than acknowledging God's in charge, which is contrasted to his response to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's like, hey, you can interpret dreams, and he's like, well, I can't, only God can interpret dreams. Like, that's, the, I think, the response that God was looking for with the cupbearer. Yes, sir? Well, so there was a, uh, I may have been from the Zohar, I think. It was on the, uh, on Kabbalah's website that showed, like, how many uh, occurrences coincided between Jacob's life and Joseph's life. Mm. You know, it listed, like, it had to be at least 20 similarities between both of them. But one thing, I don't remember reading in there, it could have been in there, but one thing that stood out to me was that idea of, like, Working really, really hard and God blessing. Oh right! You know, because like Jacob, that happens to Jacob all the time. He keeps getting in trouble because God blessing him too much, right. offending the people around him. Around him. But then something that that also you see is like you know the sages always say like Jacob is the representative of like the normal Jew, like the guy who right. has to work really, really hard in this world and is really only going to get rest in the world to come. And, right. um, and I see that with Joseph, too, just like even in these dire situations, just working extremely hard constantly uh, for and God blessing him through that. Absolutely. That's a great point. And there's they even go so far to say that Joseph was like the sitting image of Jacob, looked just like him, which leads to a really cool midrash. So there's a midrash about his whole situation with Potiphar's wife. And tradition holds, there's two, there's, there's like multiple rabbinic views on this one. Two rabbis say, he goes in the house to work. And they're saying, well, he's really going in to do his job, and he gets jumped, he gets ambushed by Potiphar's wife. There's one rabbi who says, no, 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 because he goes in to work, he's going in to, you know, work, quote unquote, but he's planning to sin. Like, that's the reason he goes into the house, because he knows nobody's there but her. Um, and, but, the, but then on his way in, he sees his reflection, and he sees his father's face because he looks just like his father. And it's like, I, I can't do it. And uh, Rabbi Mike in that podcast was talking about it, part of the, one of the other criticisms of Joseph's time is he was starting to look like an Egyptian. He was dressing and styling himself to look just like the people he was there. Um, and so if you think about it from that perspective, he was saying it was this idea of like he looks in a mirror and it's like he sees um, who he is today but it's not who he really is. The man who's getting ready to do something wrong is not who he really is. He looks in the mirror and he sees who he really is behind, you know, the eyeliner, the shaved head, or whatever it is they were doing at that time, right? He sees his father's eye looking at him and goes, that's who I'm supposed to be. I can't do this. And, um, and they were pointing out that, like, if you think about it, like, he might have been able to try to justify it. Like, well, hey, I'm supposed to eventually get into power. And there's this incredibly powerful woman who, you know, wants to be my sponsor. It's like, maybe that's how I get out of here. And uh, instead, he's inspired to be greater than that, to be who he's really supposed to be. Um, and as a result, he ends up resisting Potiphar's wife um, and becomes, instead of becoming the, 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 the picture of tragic sin, he ends up becoming 
in effect, the, um, the, the image of what a righteous man does in the face of immorality, to the point where Paul basically paraphrases off of him to say, flee immorality, literally run away from it. And that's exactly what Joseph does. He runs away from it. And I think that's so cool that like, you know, that, I think that's, that just really gets to that point that like, you know, you're never, you're never, you're, sin wants to pull you in by making you think it's too late. Sin wants to make you feel like, well, I've already done X. Yeah. I might as well do Y too because of, I've already done so many bad things it doesn't even matter anymore. So even though Joseph's intent at the beginning may have been, according to the Midrash, if you don't, again, Midrash's stories may or may not be true, point is it's trying to teach us something, um, may have been a bad intent at the beginning, but he gets a chance to not only redeem himself, but actually become the ultimate picture of overcoming temptation, which is, I think, really powerful. Just that. Just a little bit of commentary on verse 19 of 39. It says that he did not have Yosef killed. Wait, sorry. That he did not have Yosef killed was because of his affection for Yosef, because God had protected Yosef, or because knowing Yosef's righteousness, he doubted his wife's story. According to the Yahut, Potiphar's daughter Asenath swore to him that. Yosef was innocent and told him what had really happened. In this marriage, she was privileged to eventually marry Yosef. That, that actually does make wow. sense, too, because the thing that I always wondered, I mean, you see what happens when there's like an accusation with Tamar. Like, right. there's drastic consequences when an accusation like that happens. And then so you hear an accusation directly from the wife, and he, all he does is puts him in prison. Like, it was, I always thought to myself, there's clearly doubt in his mind that, that actually happened. That's true. It's, the scripture says Potiphar was furious. But it doesn't say who he was furious with. <laughs> right, right, right. And I think that's very important. I think he might as well. But that, but, that, that but, does fill in the gap a little bit with the story like that. Right. The outcome yeah. was prison? <coughs> right. That, that begs some questions, so that's an interesting yeah. take. Right, and, then, and again, like I said earlier, like Midrash is not necessarily true, but the cool part is it's like a parable. You kind of learn a lesson out of it. So even whether or not that's happened, it's a good speculation as to what could have happened. Um, but it also gives you the idea that because uh, Potiphar's, again, Midrash daughter, Asanat, is a um, does what's right and speaks out, but then she gets the honor of being effectively the you know the first lady of Egypt for all intents and purposes. Again, my dad is interested. Well, it's interesting in light of the news these days with things going on, accusations or whatever else. That this is actually an extremely credible accusation. Mm. I mean, she cries out. She follows. I mean, she's not following the Torah, but she meets the Torah standard. She cries out. She has uh, something physical of his, right. and and uh, and you know, I mean, she's a fine, upstanding woman. Why why would her word not mean anything? So I was thinking about, well, what's the difference? I mean, how can we ever have any? Uh, how can we ever approach any accusation if that if we have a credible, a very credible accusation, and it's obviously not true? What are we supposed to do? And I think it really is important that Joseph had no background and no history that even remotely looked like this. Right. And that's the difference. And it doesn't mean that people can't have separate lives or surprise us, but the point here is Joseph was, had the character, and that's probably most likely, even if the even if the story of 
of his daughter not having to, you know, tell him the story. It's most likely why Potiphar probably did not believe his wife. And the reason why is because it didn't fit. And it may have fit her life. <laughs> exactly. But it, I mean, it, it, you know, the whole, the whole, the, all, the idea that the Bible is a, you know, is, is basically it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a man's system that, you know, pushes down women, obviously, we, we know that's not true, we see that the number of women that are, you know, highly exalted and elevated in scripture, uh, but it does give us, it does give us a, a clear view that, that sin can happen on either side. And, yes. and be less uh, less likely to come to uh, conclusions at, at first accusation. Right. Sort of some benefit of the doubt. We live in a country that does say innocent until proven guilty. Did you comment? Yes. Um, I don't know if you guys read extra biblical texts, especially particularly the book of Yasher, but it speaks in detail about what actually occurred. Now, whether you read the book of rendition, that's not the point, but I consider it more of a midrash, if anything. Right. It says that, of course, Potiphar believed his wife and actually um, had him strung up to be beaten, I guess, to confess. And while they were beating him in order for him to confess to this thing, um, that Hashem put it in the mouth of a toddler to prophesy and tell the crowd that he is innocent of this. And uh, huh. it was such an amazing feat that this toddler spoke so articulately about this scenario and couldn't have comprehended it that Potiphar was at loss because now a miracle happened, but he couldn't look at his wife and say, are you lying to me? So he had to say face, not directly accuse his wife of lying, but still do a punishment, but maybe not equal to the accusation worth. So I thought it was pretty interesting with regards to that. So, so has Aaron learned yet to say, Joseph is not guilty, Potiphar's <laughs> wife is the real... No, no, he's probably, going to just probably. say grandpa is cool. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> just that. <laughs> That's a mean miracle, right? All about Potiphar's not or not believing or believing his wife. He didn't just put him in a regular prison. He put he put it in the king's prison, mm. which probably would mean that not very many people could get him out to cause trouble with him or execute him or do anything like that. Right, but. Uh, especially not um, Potiphar's wife to get rid of him so that he wouldn't tell That's a good point. That's a very good point. So I'm, I'm just guessing that he did believe him and made sure that he couldn't be done away with or anything like that. I hadn't thought of that. That's a, that's a very you got to eat well if you're the butcher's place. I mean, come on. True. Well, I thought it feels like a, uh, a Jewish deli going on down there. They've got the, the baker and the yeah. wine steward and they're in the butcher's house. It's very, there's a lot of food going on. Yeah, I got the mic in, and I got the email. Well, actually, normally what Egyptians would do if Yosef had actually tried to lay down with Potiphar's wife would be to execute him. But I would say that Potiphar probably did not believe his wife because his putting, by putting him in prison and not killing him, that would have, that would have humiliated right. his wife. Right, it would have, and it would have made him look bad, too. And I think that's one of the things, um, when Dad and I were talking recently about all the chaos and mess in the news these days, about men being accused of doing things they shouldn't have done, um, I think, first off, number one, this really teaches the importance of being a man of integrity. Amen. I mean, these men are getting called out for things that happened 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, and it's like, well, if you live your entire life doing the right thing, then you don't have to worry about that. No sweat. Um, and, and, uh, but one of the things that my dad mentioned in... Uh, is Mike Pence's rule, and then I think last night Gregory brought up Billy Graham's rule, or was it maybe Isaac? 
mentioned that one. The idea that like these these great men of faith, they have a standard in which they're not alone with women. They don't they don't have a woman behind their closed doors in their office. They're not staying late in the office with a woman. They are very very careful to segregate away uh, from uh, a woman who's not their wife. To put a to put a healthy barrier there, and I think that that's really important because um, the accusations are really only possible if you're in a position in which you could do something wrong. But um, by putting in that extra standard, that fence, um, you not only protect yourself from being stupid, but you also protect yourself from the accusations that are false. Um, and then I think I had, oh, you might have to get up. That's fine. Um, so uh, the, the contrast to this, of course, is, is Tamar. It's a very interesting story with her. Um, but one of the things that also got pointed out, and I thought was, uh, in that same podcast, they were noting that clothes apparently play a big deal in this week's part shop. So you have Joseph's garment is the coat of many colors, you know, that whole deal, whatever. So he gets in, that causes some trouble. He, get that, he loses that coat, and he goes to Egypt. He ends up losing another coat, apparently, at some point, with the whole Potiphar's wife thing. Um, <laughs> that had some issues there. But then, like, Judah, so he gives over a garment of some sort, of some sort of clothing item, to Tamar as collateral. Then, he actually, rec- well, he knows he can go and have a very uncouth conversation with Tamar because of how she's dressed, which I just want to point out right now. Juliana, amazing woman, pointed this out to me. We read, a, we read an interesting story about our blog post, blog post about a, um, about a man, from a guy's perspective, talking about, like, modesty. And basically his point was, like, I mean, he's a Christian, right? His point was like, man, modesty, whatever. Like, we need to teach men not to look bad. Like, they shouldn't look. And like, women should be allowed to basically wear whatever they want because women should be treated as beautiful. And you know, it should, as long as they're comfortable and feel good about themselves, that's what matters most. And Julian and I were talking. Julian and I were talking. Oh, absolutely, we were talking about this, and we're like, well, biblically, how do you argue against that? She pointed out Tamar. She's like, she Judah up. knew. Judah looked at her and said. You are an immoral woman. I can have a very uncomfortable conversation with you, and you're not going to slap me because you're dressed like somebody who's willing to have that conversation. And I think this is really important, you know, as you raise, some of you are raising daughters, um, some of you are daughters, uh, that you dress in a way, and men too, but I mean, particularly with girls, you dress in a way that you want to be perceived. And if you dress like a woman who acts loosely, who does things you shouldn't do, you're going to be perceived that way. That's how people are going to assume you're living your life, and they're going to treat you that way. That's not necessarily right either. Um, it's definitely not right. When men uh, get into trouble because we just do what comes pops into our heads without thinking. But the point is that um, the reason why men do that is because they, they think, based on the way the woman is acting, that they have permission to do that. No, no, they don't. But... They, I think that's the important thing to point out. Some men are just pigs, and they just they don't. Care. But a lot of times, sure, some women. Yeah, yeah, true. But there are a lot of. But the point is though that like, when women act in a certain way, they lead Sorry. the men on, and that's dangerous. And so clothes are like that. But it also goes up to the way that even as a man, how you're dressing, how, what kind of perception do you want to take? You know, like dressed success, right? So you go to work. I remember one time I went to an interview at Staples. This is back. My own little personal Joseph story, I started working in retail. So I understand, like, you know, as, as a mid-20s guy trying to get married, I had, like, one career ended, and now I'm working in retail, making minimum wage. So I kind of understand a little bit of that. Um, anyway, so we're talking to the guy in Staples, and he's like, um, they have interviews. 
He didn't even have to ask a single question. The guy would walk into the store, coming across from the other, down the hallway from this in the store, and he's wearing flip-flops and a t-shirt, and the manager's like, I already know, I'm not hiring him. It's over. Don't even have to talk to him, I already know. Because he doesn't have enough respect to show up to an interview, even for a minimum paid, wage, age, paid job, minimum wage paid job, that um, did not have enough respect for the institution to take it seriously. And that just says something about the kind of person he is. Anyway, my little spiel and close. I've got a whole bunch of hands here, so around the room. Clothes in the scripture, clothes in our, in our world, are always used as an identification, primarily for occupation. Hmm. I mean, we've seen Rick come here, you know, with the cool jacket, with the wings, but the wings are missing. But the wings are missing off his off his cool leather jacket. He's not on duty, mm. and he throws the you know. My dad was a fireman. You know what a fireman looks like. You know you run into the street and you want to find a cop. You know what the cop looks like. That's why it was called undercover. Mm. <laughs> right. They wouldn't dress in their role. We see in the scripture, the priest specifically identified by how he was dressed. That's why. Paul mouthed off at the guy in the Sanhedrin. He wasn't dressed right. Oh, I didn't know he was a high priest. That's a high priest? What's with the funny mustache? You know, that kind of thing. That's right. He's a t-shirt and flip-flops. And at that point, you know, we wear these funky little blue strings. Yeah. And, you know, I tell you, I feel like a, a Jew magnet. But no wonder, I'm the only guy out there with these on. You know, like people literally will come up to complete strangers. I had two uh, uh, Jewish religious women just walk up to me. Uh, they're out of town. They saw me walking to my car, and they came up to ask me, like, where, where the closest kosher deli was. It's a long way. It's man. a long ways away. <laughs> but I was able to give them the, uh, the, the place and the address or whatever. So, like, but, like, you wear your kippah, you wear your seat seat, and it's like, these are clothes. But these are, these are, these are symbols. And they're saying... This is who I am. That was part of the point, by the way. God intentionally did that because he wanted us to be different. So that when people looked at us, they go, they're the people of God. Oh, got my the mom and dad. thing is actually what I was going to mention. Uh, oh, me too. I thought it was safe for me to say that. In the Israel Museum, this is where I was they, have, they have clay imprints of tzitzit. And they predate the Torah long before the Torah. Huh. It's the same time as... And they make a reference to uh, Judah here. Mm -hmm. right. that, that is, and the reason why some translations say a signet ring is because it was a personal identification mark. And the, and the knots were personal. In other words, you tied your tzitzit your way. Hmm. And therefore, they became, in clay, they became a signature. So uh -huh. when it says he left his, some translation says he left his belt. Other translation says he left his coat. Others say he left his signet ring. And the reason why is because it was most likely tzitzit. Cool. Which museum was that? What? It was actually the Israel Museum. No, it's Bible Land. Bible Land Museum? Okay, well, it's right there in the Israel Museum. In, in Israel, in the Bible Land Museum. It's right next to it. But yeah. it was really cool when we were there. Um, they actually had a clay imprint with tzitzit. <laughs> and the fact that it specifically used that scripture passage about Judah in it, showing it that it was used that way. Well, unfortunately, he didn't remember the reason for the tzitzit in that moment, but... Um, Actually, that's the interesting thing is because that predates the commandment for Zizi. That's true. And the commandment for Zizi, God, God was this, was I don't know words in his mouth was essentially giving us this is my identity marker. In other right. words, it's my name, so it's not your identity marker. It's my identity marker upon you. Right. 
with the pellet and all that. Very cool. Very, very cool. Uh, we got Josiah, then I got Nehemiah over here. Uh, on the clothes subject, you notice that there are a bunch of uh, little hints on clothing. For example, you see this multicolored, multicolored tunic and uh, Yehuda's tunic and also another one of Yosef's tunics or robes. So, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of clothes. Got a lot of clothes in this particular part. Emphasis on clothes. Yeah, interesting. Yes, sir. Um, the switch speeds a little bit and go back to the dreams that he was asked to interpret. Um, kind of hit, hit me yesterday when because uh, she read that portion of it. Um, but when he... Uh, when he interpreted the dreams, or was given the interpretation of the dreams, um, with the cupbearer was, I'm going to be serving this cup to the king, right? More than likely, it was probably wine, but it's just, you know, there. But, uh, but then with the baker, when the baker says, three baskets of bread, right? And then the birds were eating the bread, right? And so, in Joseph's interpretation, it was, three days, the baskets are three days, but then that the bread was his flesh. So the mm. similarities between the bread and the flesh, right? And yeah, then the cup, that. you know, it's just something that hit me. That I didn't weird. go into it, then. yeah, you yeah. know what I mean? I get, but I to show, you know, like, you he know. He did squeeze grapes in yeah. his cup, so it was yeah. one. Yeah, but to, to see, you know, uh, Mashiach come and say, I am the bread from heaven, right? If you eat of my flesh, right? And then when he talks about his blood, you drink of this cup. It just, you know. That's cool. Yeah. I didn't thought of that. Yeah. Very cool. Um, yeah, Mashiach obviously is throughout the story of Joseph. You see him over and over again. Um, Joseph is a type of Mashiach. He, uh, and it's not just Christians and Messianics who think that. Uh, I say Messianics in quotes. Um, Orthodox Jews, who happen to be believers in Messiah, which could make them messianic, but not believers in Messiah, like we're believers in Messiah, believers in a coming Messiah. Um, I believe in a coming Messiah. Like, well, I know, right? Like Ramban, as in the first time coming. Um, they uh, they also see this as like, you know, Joseph is a, he's a messianic character to some degree, or at least they, his story is important to Messiah, obviously, because there's um, messianic implications. But they even point out, like, I thought um, Yishai Fleischer talking about the significance of you know, Judah's sin here um, turning into turns into Messiah's line. Like Judah makes this horrible mistake with Tamar. Um, but that is the, the... We read it. Matthew chapter 1, right? This is the line of Messiah. This is where he comes from. And um, and if you think about that, uh, reading this in the Rashi commentary this week, it was talking about this idea of almost like there's this... Um, see the sovereignty of God. In a, in a new level there where it's like he doesn't even like even our mistakes God can use and it's not in the sense that God can use it like oops you messed up but well God can change his plans and kind of work it out somehow but it's like God does it on purpose like that's the like that's, that's not surprising him and I think that it's not to say that we should we should feel good about our sin or not regret our sin but I think it should it does change even our perspective about our sin because um, God's, God's even able to use that. God's able to do good things in the midst of it and through it. Um, some things that sometimes that are necessary even. Uh, and that can give us a sense of peace. Um, 
kind of let us let go of some of our own past mis- misdeeds because we can know that God's using it. And God's using it for, for good, um, especially when we repent. And I think one of the beautiful things about this passage is you see that, you know, we talked about earlier about Joseph. So Joseph's here, and he's not maybe caring about other people as well as he should. And then at the end of the story, that's really, it's almost like that's the only thing he's thinking about is the people around him. You know, Judah goes through the same transformation. It is part of the parasha. Judah's the leader. Like, Judah's the one who's able to say, let's not kill him, let's sell him. And it doesn't take a whole lot of convincing. I mean, these guys, like, like they were they were really mad towards Joseph. But Judah, all he has to kind of do is kind of give, like, kind of a good idea. It'll get us 20 pieces of silver, y'all. We'll get each a pair of shoes out of this deal. That was it. That was all he had to do because they trusted him. He was the leader. Which means that his mistake there was not going far enough. Judah could have said, guys, Joseph's our brother. We can't do this. And they would have listened to him. That was Judah's failure. But then, next week's parasha, I'm not jumping ahead a little bit, but is it next week? week after that, anyway. Two, two weeks. Two weeks, oh. We'll get to this later, but, you know, spoiler alert. Um, For those of you who haven't read. Yeah. Judah learns this lesson. Judah learns what it means to be a real leader. And to take him to put himself at risk when necessary, and you see that repentance and the story of Tamar seems to be part of that journey, because he recognizes that the things that he's done wrong, um, and he owns up to them, and takes responsibility for them, and then and God uses that, and I think that's really powerful. Um, they have Gregory. Oh, I, I just as a. You know, this is almost like messianic inception, like dream within a dream, because you have right. like Judah and like this whole, uh, obviously Peretz like being right in here, buried in the whole you know messianic Joseph story as well. Like it's just, it's really interesting to the the, the story of the birth of Peretz. So just like this the thread, and then like oh, but then it wasn't that one because then it was it was him, and then I, I the other translation I felt like it's something like. Um, Actually, this one says, with what strength you asserted your... Oh, it, um, the one that we were reading earlier was something like, uh, what a breach you have made mm-hmm. for yourself. And that, uh, I think, means, comes from the idea of, like, yeah. breakthrough. Breakthrough, yeah. Yeah, but that, that is just, uh, that's a really, it's a fascinating tie back to to the way that Messiah returns. You know, just his, his coming being a very, being a surprise... Number one, because no man knows the day or the hour. Oh, good point. But it also being a really, really big deal on the heels of, of a whole bunch of things that's going to be heralding that moment. So that's cool. Yeah, I like that. Thank you very much. Just that. I have some really odd things in here that probably that I do not know the answer to. Uh-oh. Uh oh. Make no promises. First off, when you show. It says, Yisrael said to Yosef, Your brothers are pastoring in Shechem, are they not? Come and I will send them, send you to them. He said to him, Here I am. Which I don't really get. This is a great phrase. So, I, this is so cool. So, I, I'm. If you haven't listened to the Yishai Fleischer podcast, I've already ruined it for you, but go ahead and listen to it anyway. <laughs> This one was great. So he's talking about this point. Because he said, like, why is he saying here I am, right? So Hineni is what it is in Hebrew. And it's not the only time you see that in this context. They point out Abraham says this. Isaiah says this. God says, who am I going to send? And Isaiah goes, here I am. Um, but what the cool part was, and I never heard this before. This was really interesting. Like, 
interpretation of that word, that word, um, here I am, in response to a superior saying, I need you to do a mission. Here I am is saying, I know who I am. I'm, I'm, I recognize what my role is here, and I'm here at your service. It's like it's almost like it, it starts off, rather than being kind of like, well, I'm not really sure if I want to do this or not, kind of uncertain. I don't really know. Do I really want to serve you? Do I want to serve somebody else? It's like, I'm 100%. Um, is, to quote the, uh, the, the old saying, you know, wherever you are, be all there. I am all here. I know who I am. And I think it's so cool because Yeshua does the exact same thing. The book of John, right before he goes to the cross, he has, you know, this dinner happens to be his last supper um, with Pesach meals with his disciples. And in the book of John, he says, based, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says, I know who I am. I know why I'm here. And now I'm ready to do my father's will. Like, there's not, he's not, um, there's no wrestling for him. This is not what Moses said. Yeah, I don't speak that. Right, right, right. It's just the opposite. Right. No, maybe he, he talks a lot better. Yeah. So Joseph, I think, again, let's go back to what I was trying to say earlier. Joseph may have his flaws. Joseph is awesome. We really like Joseph. And, and there's kind of like... And Yishai Fleischer mentions this, that like God kind of favors Joseph, really. I mean, it's easy to kind of look at this story and be like, oh, Jacob was doing... You know what's fascinating? It doesn't say Jacob loved Israel, uh, Joseph more than the others. It says Israel loved Joseph more than the others. Israel is his good name. Like, there's a, there's a midrash that says whenever it uses the word Israel, it's like a prophetic term. Like, like, like that's like the, like the super Jacob, you know, the alter ego, right? So it's like his, his better version and it's like, that's the one who loves Joseph. Not to say that it's good to have favorites, but the point is that, like, Joseph is a favorite for a reason. Because Joseph is wise, and Joseph is godly, and Joseph goes to his father and says, here I am. Think about it. His brothers hate him. They do not like him. He knows this. Or maybe he should know this. And he's like, go find my brothers in a field by themselves. Nobody look and see what's going on. Sure, here I am. Send me. To that point, even uh, in verse two, it says, "This is the history between both of Jacob and then Joseph, right?" So that in the other times you see both, basically, it's just kind of what's going to carry on lineage, right? So right. it seems like this passage is saying the the, the, the brothers and the, the, the future of Israel is in Joseph's hands, right? And I like the ambiguity of the of it where it says. Um, Joseph and his brothers were shepherding or whatever, or feeding, depending upon your translation. So, like, the row AX uh, is, uh, it could be taken, Joseph was shepherding his brothers, she was feeding the sheep, right? So, it's, it seems like he's been in this role of overseeing his brothers for a while. Right, right. Yeah. The other odd thing that I found was. It says, Reuben heard, and he rescued him from their hand. And then a few verses later, and so it was when Yosef came to his brothers. Oh, no, he rescued them, like, uh, figuratively. You know, he, he convinced them not to kill him outright. They were going to throw him in the pit instead. So... I agree, Richard. That's a really good point. It's also kind of cool, like, just that whole exchange between Joseph and that random person in the field. 
you know, who is like, he's, he's like, what are you doing? You know, and you're like, oh, I'm looking for my brothers. I mean, there's no personal identifiers exchanged between the two of them at all. Like, the only option is, like, Rashi's like, well, obviously that's the angel Gabriel. I mean, clearly, I mean. There's a whole lot of mystery in that entire exchange. And then and the place, Dopan, all of that is just, it's just something they are very weird getting. Yeah, yeah. Means it's prophetic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so do you know where Dothan is? No. No. Yes. Okay. Hmm. I always feel bad for the baker. Uh, I know. He hears that thing from the about the the other guy. It's like, oh man, this is gonna be great. Yeah, it's gonna go fine. Oh yeah, three baskets of bread, bud. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Why did I have to tell you that story? Oh. I didn't you take it back. You can almost feel like in that in that in that account, he um, it's like so the first guy. His story ends with, and I pressed the grapes, and there was a cup of wine in my hand. And you gotta you just gotta think to yourself. We're not. We're not. We, we, we have the luxury of hindsight here. But kind of like, why didn't the baker think to himself, the birds are eating the bread in my story. <laughs> <laughs> this is obviously not a good thing. It doesn't end as well. Last time we maybe, did bread maybe he was thinking, like, is the bird Pharaoh? <laughs> <laughs> eating my bird. Eating my bread. Eating yeah, my bread yeah. from my head. Maybe yeah. I'm going to be Pharaoh. Funny. Yeah. Funny. <laughs> I get the respect I deserve. Pharaoh's in my bread. Yeah. <laughs> the Pharaoh, the Sparrow. That's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> It is really sad. Um, but you know what's amazing about this story? That those guys, I love how the, uh, it works in this week, in the parasha, in, in, the, in the Genesis of Joseph. And it says, it came out after these things, you know, with all the mess of Potiphar's wife. And then Pharaoh was mad at the baker and the cupbearer. And, and it's like, whoa, just time out for one second. God said, and it came about when Joseph was in trouble, that. We then orchestrated a political brouhaha that happens to nothing to do at all with Joseph, but they happen to throw them in the same prison with a big enough issue with at least one of them. Because he wants to, you know, it's like, whoa. It'd be kind of like in today's language if it was almost like, and, you know, Bob was sent to prison for sin, crime he didn't commit. And it happened in those days that the son-in-law of the president who got in trouble for, you know, yeah, trying to do something wrong, and then he gets sent to that prison specifically, happens to befriend this guy, and then he has a dream. It's like, it reminds me of the book of Esther, right? So, like, our job today, especially, is we don't live in a day of open miracles as much anymore. There are occasional open miracles where it's like, God does something, it's like, well, there's only explanation is the Right. Even, even my son, who's a miracle. Right. Absolutely. Even my son, who is a miracle, we recognize it. We have to see it. It's a difference between like literally fire coming down from heaven and you praying for years for a child and God gives them to you. Because every other person who's watching that story can still, in their foolish minds, and they would take God out of it, rationalize that. That's what happens here. Throughout Joseph's life, these things happen that could be rationalized. But the real man of God sees God's hand in it. The real man of God says, this is, this is God acting. And I know it's God acting. My God doing this. And now I think this, this, this personally, I feel like this past week, we saw God act. Amen. I think, I mean, I can't, I told my wife, I said, I never thought in my lifetime I would see a U.S. president declare Jerusalem the capital of Israel. Be true. Yeah. I mean, unbelievable. And it was really weird because um, 
was the best speech I've ever read from Donald Trump. It was like he had words from somebody else that he was reading. Um, 250 <laughs> rabbis in Israel wrote him a letter thanking him for his courage and that they felt God was using him in prophecy. They told, they told him, you are fulfilling prophecy today. And I think it's important for us, as we watch these things unfold around us, to look for God. Because that's the, the mistake of today's world. These things happen and they brush it aside and think it's no big deal. Um, I actually had a chance to interview Yishai Fleischer recently um, for an article I was writing. And he was saying that he talks to Muslim you know, extremists or whatever from time to time. <laughs> when you live in Hebron, apparently you get to mix with a lot of interesting people. Um, and he just said, like, you know, I'm like, look, look at this, miracles, God's obviously on our side. You know? And they'll go, yeah, but, you know, Israel's been tricking for the last 20 years, so, you know, obviously we win. And it's like, you think about that, it's like, there are, there are actually people in the world that can look at one little teeny tiny Jewish nation with Holocaust survivors beating off five Arab armies, and that's not God. There's no God. And I think the point that I'm trying to get at is, we have to see those. We have to look in purpose. We have to be Joseph. What was Joseph's mistake here? What we were talking about earlier. He didn't. He didn't recognize how supernatural this was, and we have to do that. We have to point it out. We have to tell others. We have to believe it ourselves. Um, just going back again with regards to Joseph being asked his father to go find his brother and check about their well-being. I mean, I like to see the parallels with regards to David. Joseph, all, I mean, David was asked by his father to go check up on your brothers and their well-being right. when they were yeah. high in the Philistine. Right. Um, and the representation, Joseph being um, the Messiah as the servant, the suffering servant, David being the Messiah as the king, is a great parallel with which I call the causality of humanity, specifically with regard to Yeshua coming first as a suffering servant and then re-emerging as the conquering king. Mm. So, I like to see that. And then in that point, you know, that Joseph's care for his brother is such a big deal. That's something that Yishai Fleischer mentioned. It's a really good podcast. Um, <laughs> I think you know, that, like, how great is that? Like, that's what Jews should do, right? They should be like, I'm going to go care about my brothers. I'm going to go see what's going on with them. Is that a hand? No. No, just a stretch. That's fine. Um, so we're not going to be here for Benjamin, probably. So, uh, just to mention, that's key when Judah recognizes Benjamin. Right, and and protecting and protecting Benjamin. So I think the youngest, the youngest brother. We we might identify ourselves as Ben. Right, we can. Or, but then also even beyond that, in addition to that, that whole idea of undoing the sin. What was the sin in the Second Temple? Uh, baseless hatred. Right. It's this idea of Jew against Jew, um, undercutting each other, uh, speaking lashon hara. Going back to the beginning of this uh, parasha, and ultimately um, hating one another. For, without cause, they were just because you didn't dress the way that I dress, or you don't have the same tradition that I have, or or you come from a different part of the country than I come from, or whatever it might be. You talk funny. It's, it's the same things we're dealing with in this country. I mean, it's amazing. You think about like, um, it's a miracle, quite frankly, that God has not let us tear ourselves apart already. Because if you think about the kind of di uh, division and anger so much in this country, it's the same thing. It's baseless hatred. People hate other people because with no good reason, but simply because they're different or because it bothers them or whatever. They don't have what they have, whatever it might be. Um, so the best way that I can think of to undo that for the Jewish people, to, to herald Messiah, would be for them to be like Judah, to accept, to take those least of these, right, and to embrace them. And, and, uh, and that should be our job, too, to be, doing, to be working on that. 
Um, Judaism teaches, and I think this is, I think there's some truth to this. Like, we usher in Messiah. Yep. Like, God have a plan, you know, whatever else. But, like, from our perspective, like, the more, when we do what's right, we're bringing, it, bringing Messiah's kingdom closer. Um, and it's, it, it certainly seems that way. I mean, what does Yeshua say? I, you know, I longed for you. Um, I would have gathered you up like a, like a mother hen with, with its babies, and instead you, you resisted. And it's like almost, it feel, you almost feel it. Can you feel it? And Yeshua's words, almost like, this could have been it. I was ready for this to be it, but you weren't. Yeah. Well, just alluding back when you mentioned um, how it represents us, you know, the rejection of the Jewish brothers to their Jewish brother himself as a result of him having to go to the Gentiles, mm. resulted in the salvation of the Egyptian nation right. during the time of famine. So and then a restoration of the brothers back into it, which held in the Messianic kingdom. Right. So I see that also a representation here. Absolutely. Of it was necessary so that the Torah and the Word could go out to the Goyim, the right. everyone. Right. And as a result, it wasn't just Egypt that was blessed from it. It was all the nations around Egypt who had to come to the Jewish um, ruler, ruler, right. in order to receive the bread and receive the spiritual word. So I, I see that's very strong. Again, you see causality, duality, yep. this relationship right. here, and I think that it was necessary. And that's yeah. why it's in the scriptures. Absolutely right. It was necessary, and that was Joseph's point. You know, well, you meant for evil, God meant for good. Yeah. All right. Any other final comments? Really good. Obviously, we have got to come back together again in two weeks because there's a lot to talk about. Um, I'm going to ask my uh, brother-in-law and good friend here, who is the proud father of a new baby girl, <laughs> if you would close us in prayer. Uh, I'd be glad to. Avinu Malkinu, our father, our king, we are so grateful for your Shabbat and for giving us an opportunity to fellowship with this community, blessing us with a new baby and giving us that opportunity to bring her here and introduce her to the community and to just show off your glory and give you the praise and honor for all of the blessings that you have bestowed upon us. We pray that you would give us the peace of Shabbat throughout this whole week. Bless the work of our hands like you blessed Joseph's, the works of Joseph's hands. And may we continue to dive into Torah and perceive the wonders there. In your son's name, Hashem Yeshua, Amen. 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 Amen.